0: Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos in Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fowles, and today we're discussing the hashtag MeToo and hashtag TimesUp movement. Hashtag Me Too was originally created by activist Tara Burke 10 years ago, but it took force in the fall of 2017 when high-profile names in Hollywood were being accused of sexual misconduct. It really was a hashtag that provided a space for women to openly declare instances when they have or had experiences of sexual harassment or, or sexual violence. The impact was so great that Time Magazine named the silence breakers prompted by this movement, the Person of the Year. Although many of the silence breakers are famous women, many are not, and it included an immigrant who named her abuse in Spanish. This, to me, is also groundbreaking, since many of the women who are the target of this violence are often in marginalized positions via class, race, and immigrant status. The hashtag TimeSap campaign wants us to denounce sexual assault, harassment, and inequality in the workplace. Although this campaign was started by women in the film, television, and theater industry, it positions itself among the Alianza Nacional de Campesinas, whose mission is to quote, Unify the struggle to promote farm workers, women's leadership, in a national movement to create a broader visibility and advocate for changes that ensure their, hum- their human rights, end of quote. In doing so, these movements are being inclusive of all women and in all industries. I will briefly quote from the Dear Sisters letter published in January 2018, but I encourage everyone to read the entire letter. Quote, Too many centers of power, from legislatures to boardrooms to executive suites and management to academia, lack gender parity and women do not have equal decision-making authority. This systemic gender inequality and imbalance of power fosters an environment that is ripe for abuse and harassment against women, end of quote. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Let me introduce my guest. Lourdes Barroso de Padilla has an extensive background in youth development and leadership. She has served with City Year, an education-focused organization dedicated to helping students and schools succeed for more than 20 years. Currently, she serves as the director of the Latina Mentoring Academy, a unique professional mentoring program for Latinas in Central Ohio, in addition to serving as the president of the Board of Directors for the Latino Empowerment Outreach Network, also known as LEON. Lourdes is a bilingual first-generation Cuban-American who was born and raised in the east side of Columbus and is a product of the Columbus public school system. Gisela Latorre is an associate professor in the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at The Ohio State University. She specializes in modern and contemporary U.S. Latinx and Latin American art with a special emphasis on Chicana Latina feminism. She is the author of Walls of Empowerment, Chicana o Indigenous Murals from California, published in 2008, and the co-author of Murales Rebeldes, LA Chicana Chicano Murals under Siege, uh, published last year in 2017. La Torres current book Manuscript, Democracy on the Wall, Street Art of the Post Dictatorship Era in Chile, is under review with OSU Press. Yolanda Cepeda is assistant vice provost in the Ohio State University Office of Diversity and Inclusion. Yolanda has expertise in areas of diversity and inclusion, education and student access. Cepeda oversees a range of targeted programs that promote the full inclusion of students from diverse backgrounds. These include Latinx student success programs, single parent students, students in STEM, and support for women of color. She leads campus-wide efforts to promote strategies for diverse faculty hires, and she facilitates adoption of model practices in the recruitment and advancement of students from underrepresented groups, Outreach and partnerships that advance the educational achievement of Latinx in Ohio and nationally. Welcome to the podcast, everyone.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: The #MeToo movement, as I pointed out at the beginning, was started ten years ago. However, we know that instances of sexual violence and oppression have always existed. What do you feel has finally sparked these stories? This is Gisella.
2: Um So, thank you for your question, uh, Elena. Um, I think definitely the centrality and the visibility of Hollywood has um, sparked the stories and has created a lot created a lot of awareness because here we're seeing who we thought were powerful women in Hollywood, who, as it turns out, were being undermined, violated, mm-hmm. and controlled by. Men in the same industry. So I think this idea of somebody like, you know, Angelina Jolie, who's supposed to be this big player in the industry, uh, who has a lot of power, uh, and someone like her could actually be sort of, uh, you know, victimized. Mm -hmm. Uh, It, you know, it it caused a lot of pause, I think, um, which also leads to the question in terms of, you know, what kinds of recourses less powerful women Mm -hmm. have when it comes to. uh, responding and contesting and uh, challenging their experiences with uh, sexual um, uh, harassment and assault.
1: Mm-hmm. This is Lourdes. I, I think it's I think it's always a bravery of people coming forward. Mm-hmm. But I think what's interesting in this movement is the person who cracked the story was actually a uh, a man who was a journalist, right? He's the one who went after the story and persuaded a really influential paper to run the story, which I think to me shows um, how we need advocates in our community. I, it, I think in any movement, it's not just about the people who are running the movement, the people that are affected by it, but it's also about having allies on the other side of the people so, who have power. Mm-hmm. And so I think for many years, there were stories about this. There were actresses who came out who, who people... They didn't take their side because they didn't feel like they could, Mm -hmm. right? And so, when, as soon as I I think it's interesting because when there was a male journalists Mm -hmm. associated with the story who had recognition who had power who pushed the story along I think that's when it began to gain traction you know and then after that I think it started I think it opened the floodgates for other people um, there's there's always that story of um, the bravest person isn't the first person who steps forward but the second Mm -hmm. you know because that's the person who joins in and that's the person who actually creates the movement Mm -hmm. Um, that's the person who's like you're not crazy (laughs) you're not the crazy dance At the concert, I'm going to join you. And then other people are like, well, two people are doing it. So then I'm going to do it too. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, it's interesting, because I think if we watch throughout history, you know, if you look at the civil rights movement, for a long time, people of color were trying to advance the movement, but it wasn't until other allies joined in Mm -hmm. that didn't look like them, that had the power, that it really started to gain traction.
3: Mm -hmm. This is Yolanda. I think there are a lot of different pieces that are coming together that um, it's... very encouraging, so we 've had a couple of decades now of unconscious bias uh, research, so mm-hmm. we know we know how extensive this uh, a lot of the attitudes and, and, and bias are and how ingrained they are in society. Um, we also have a couple of decades of um, diversity work in professional settings that look at the impact on the bottom line. So we know that it's costing us. And then we we have these great millennials who mm. are absolutely impatient. They want change and they want change now mm-hmm. and they're demanding it. So all of these pieces coming together, I think, um, mean that those stories that had been told earlier. In fact, uh, just this week, I was reading about a president from a university uh, in their dark um, archival documentation of women talking about um, the harassment that they endured uh, with him. Uh, so people have been telling these stories for a long time, mm-hmm. but I think we've got a lot of factors that are coming together, and um, w- there's no going back. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's
0: right. Uh, these silent breakers have used social media to speak their truth. Why is this the preferred venue? Um, this is Gisela again. Um, well, definitely social media
2: is an interesting phenomenon. I mean, social media is both a site of potential empowerment. Uh, we see social movements using social media to promote and to disseminate their, their, their messages of uh, of social justice. But also social media is a site of oppression as well, because we know that a lot of the bullying mm-hmm. and a lot of the gendered forms of um, uh, uh, oppression happened through the realm of social media, so I think it was this place where uh there it was a place that needed to be uh how could i say uh intervened mm-hmm. um, by these activists um, and it's also a place that is not as heavily controlled as, like, maybe more mainstream forms of media. Mm-hmm. And so, it it, it 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 was this place that was ripe for intervening. And at the same time, it has this flexibility that allows people to, um, you know, to uh, to get their message across throughout without, rather, you know, uh, the control or the censors mm-hmm. of, like, let's say, media producers, right? Absolutely. So, so mm-hmm. definitely, social media was. A good place mm-hmm. to start.
3: Mm-hmm. I also think that, um, you know, it's a very lonely place to be, that person who speaks up. And social media mm. really has Creates effectively connected. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You're not speaking alone. There are those around you, for good or for bad, but, but you're not alone.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, in social media, you are the editor-in-chief. Mm-hmm. You control your message, and it's the most accessible form to get your message out there. Mm-hmm. And um, I And I think... Yolanda, back to your point. I mean, this is how this generation and generations to come, this is how they express themselves. This is how this is the place where they get information. This is the place where they do join movements. This is a place where they can have their voice heard. I think that in some instances, it's a little bit of like low Mm cost or or low risk. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if I can't march, I can. Post. Mm-hmm. Right. If I can't be out there, I can you know, if I'm upset about something, I find justice in social media. Mm-hmm. Right. If I am um, if I have an opinion, I can voice it there. You know, and and even for some people, I mean, it's the most courageous way for them to mm-hmm. voice it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're at work or you're at a university or wherever your setting may be and you don't feel like you can voice it there. You can on social media, mm-hmm, right? This is mm-hmm. this is a platform, and I think this is a new way for people to express themselves, mm-hmm. and it's the fastest way for things to grow. It's, it's interesting because there are days when um, I can look at social media and get completely inspired by what's on my Facebook feed or what's on my Twitter feed or mm-hmm. what's in my Instagram, and there are days where I feel like I'm saddened by what I see. Right? <laughs> I need a break from it. Right? Too. <laughs> yeah, and you need a break because this is where people are going to you have the pulse, I think, of the people who you're surrounded by. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the other thing, right? These are the people in your bubble. And sometimes that's too, you know, to your point, I think it's, um, it It can be, it, it has its pros and its cons. Mm-hmm. But I think that this is the new way for people to express themselves. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now to follow up a little bit uh, with what Lourdes has said, because I think that she's sort of pointing to also the the complicated and the not dangerous, but the difficult aspects of social media. Because I think that even we can say that social media was this great platform, but what also made it, uh, made this, uh, the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement, what made it uh, so... so widely available, is that it didn't just happen on social media. Mm -hmm. Uh, It happened in other venues. It happened uh, with lawsuits. It happened with other kinds of social actions. And Mm -hmm. so I think that the message also is that social media is one. If if you want a social movement to be successful, social media is just one of the platforms. But if you stay in social media and you don't do anything else, Mm -hmm. you're not going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. So,
0: yes. um, So the next question that I have for you, it's something that I've been thinking about, right? We have this knowledge, information, uh, resources in some way available to us. But um, are most women still unable to report sexual harassment on the job? And are we uh, or they still confused about the rights that we have in the workplace? Um,
2: I think that yes, I think that, that that I think for women it is still difficult to do it because a lot of institutions, a lot of workplaces, uh, either don't have a very clear policy in terms of what are the steps that you take, um, but also um, I think that there is still a culture uh, in a lot of places of employment where you uh, where the messages that you know if you are not, quote unquote, a team player, mm-hmm. that you may um, kind of harm your, uh, uh, you know, your professional reputation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to underscore also that for women of color in particular, mm-hmm. this is uh, I think, even more difficult because there's all these tropes that tend to uh, uh, characterize women of color as being overly dramatic, you mm-hmm. know, as, you know, uh, as be, or as being angry, right? We're mm-hmm. familiar with those tropes. And so a lot of times, you know, um, uh, grievances or, uh, you know, reporting uh, sexual harassment mm-hmm. gets, I think— um, Dismissed or minimized mm-hmm. because of these already pre-existing assumptions about the the character and the personality of a woman of color, mm-hmm. and so that. So I think yes, it's still very difficult.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I think it's also not to be. Um, a, underestimated the impact of um, how much we've ingrained expectations. And I'll use myself as an example. Um, A few weeks ago, I was talking with a colleague, and we were talking about the the next story that erupted. And um, this colleague said to me, um, expressed the surprise that it was so widespread, the number of women who've reported um, being harassed. And, and said uh, about herself, I, I don't think I've ever had uh, an experience like that. Is there something wrong with me? And I just kind of went along and said, yeah, I don't really know. And then I came home, and I was talking with my husband, and my husband said, Yolanda, you have told me about this and this and this and this. <laughs> and I there are things that, that I've kind of normalized. They mm-hmm. were experiences that I didn't even identify necessarily as, as sexual harassment, but they actually were, and wow. you just kind of accept a lot, uh, mm-hmm. and you know when you're in your survival mode or what mm-hmm. have you. So, so I think that um, that, in addition to to um, being vulnerable and not being not necessarily having the resources or the protection uh, or systems in place to report and interrupt mm-hmm. that bias, there's also a lot of stuff that's happening internally, mm-hmm. a lot of things mm-hmm. that we've just accepted uh, that we really need to um, bring out.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I I think the Point also about being confused is something that um, I believe it's it's intimidating when you don't feel like you're in power. It's intimidating for many people when there are not a lot of people of color. There are environments where there's not a lot of women, or there's not a lot of women of color. I think that's very intimidating, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that I think going moving through the world being a woman, you're constantly interpreting people's actions Mm -hmm. or their intent. I think being a person of color, you're adding another layer on that. So there's constantly kind of a dialogue in your head of understanding, of allowing people grace, but at the same time, educating, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And I grew up in a predominantly, I grew up in a community of color that was not my own, Mm -hmm. right? So I grew up in going to predominantly African American schools. um, So it was a very different experience being a minority Mm -hmm. if you will within another minority group Mm -hmm. right and understanding your place and so I think that you create these dialogues in your head and so I think that understanding what harassment is I think even if you've ever gone through a sexual harassment training Mm -hmm. you know the idea of like what is intent and what is not how do you Feel Like those situations where you felt icky like this Mm -hmm. does not feel right. And having an understanding of is this a conversation that I need to have with someone? Is this something I need to report? What is your work environment like? I think it's incredibly confusing. And Mm -hmm. I think also we come from a culture where um, there's many things that are accepted in our culture for Mm -hmm. good or for not. That is very different than American culture. And depending upon the degrees of how ingrained you have been in your Latino culture, Mm -hmm. and where, you know, for a person like me, I'm first generation American, and, you know, I used to joke around that I was Latino on the weekends, because that's when I went to Spanish speaking Mm -hmm. church and to all my, you know, we hung out with all of my parents' friends, and, They were two very different worlds, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I often felt like I was ni de aquí, ni da allá, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I had myself firmly planted in two different cultures. Mm -hmm. I remember people saying to me, you're not Cuban-American, you're (laughs) American-Cuban. Or, like, you know, I was la Americanita, right, because I was very, like, don't talk to me like that. You don't say this. You don't say that. Mm And to me, I felt very strong in my conviction that that was not okay, and it wasn't about being Latino culture. Like it just was not okay. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we, especially as a people, especially as we define ourselves in this country, in this culture, trying to meet the two together, is incredibly difficult mm-hmm. and incredibly confusing. And um, we need to start making decisions about our own culture and what what is okay and what isn't.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How is our society complicit in creating a culture of abuse by making young women believe that powerful men will protect them or that male sexual interest is a compliment or even that women's own sexual allure can be used as a source of power without harmful uh, consequences and I think uh, Lourdes, this is something that you kind of started uh, hinting right um, we grew up in a in a in a culture that uh, promotes if you if you see uh, maybe not necessarily in our in each of our particular um, families but uh, if you if you watch uh, Telemundo Univision, what you see there on this uh, television um, channels, um, you see this emphasis on um, uh, women being overly sexual um, and, and and attracting that. Um, you know the the male gaze is actually um is that's what you want that's what you're taught right that that's that that's your uh, goal <laughs> to bring attention to yourself but then what do we do with that attention right and so there is this double h um sore um for for uh women in general, but also specifically i think for uh latina women
2: yeah i you know for me that's a complicated issue because uh coming from like the field of women's gender and sexuality studies, I think that we have these very interesting dialogues about, um, you know, uh, women's expression of sexuality. And so uh, on the one hand, you know, we are conditioned to uh, uh, kind of uh, focus our social value on our attractiveness to heterosexual men, you mm-hmm. know? And I think that in Latinx cultures, I grew up in, you know, uh In Chile, in the 1970s and and 80s, and and that was definitely part of the cultural, you know, um, sort of assumptions. Um, But at the same time, you know, we can say that uh, that you know, as women, we have to be cognizant of how you know overt expressions of sexuality are going to put us in positions where we're going to be objectified. But on the other hand, we don't want to police women from expressing their sexuality. Mm -hmm. So it's that fine line between how you're expressing your sexuality, whether you're doing it because you feel that that's your social worth in society, mm-hmm. or whether you're you're doing it because that's who you are, mm-hmm. you know, and that fine line is a very difficult one. So my thought is that, you know, if you, you know, feel comfortable wearing, you know, uh, you know, what what do you call them, Daisy Duke shorts and a loca, <laughs> and, you know, and, and that's who you are in your expression, that's not, like, uh, you you should not be, like, policing yourself, you know. I think that it's, the the education comes from those who, uh, you know, who treat women in a particular way Mm -hmm. and who see that as a sign of, oh, she is, you know, uh, open or available for me to, you know, to make unwanted sexual advances. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of, of the expression of sexuality is a complicated one because I think as women we are always straddling that fine line between what is, part of our own individuality in terms of our sexuality, and what is something that has been, you know, imposed on us uh, through mm-hmm. the cultures of, you know, misogyny, through the cultures of machismo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, it's a complicated question for me. I, mm-hmm. I,
3: I want to follow up or extend that um, thinking a little bit as well. Um, I've been looking at some recent research that looks at women in uh, male-dominated areas like STEM, and um there was an, an interesting study I read uh, earlier this week about um, the, the researchers asked women about whether, what they thought about a male partner being smarter, if, they, if it was important for them, if they preferred a male partner who was smarter than they were. And for that group of women, if they primed them on romantic goals, so they got them thinking about uh, getting a partner, they, those women performed more poorly on math tests mm-hmm. than a control group. Hmm. And um, so what I'm suggesting is the expectations that women have about themselves and the, the expectations they have about themselves vis-a-vis their, their partners is also going to shape their achievements. So I, I, for me, it's really important that we help women think about their values in more ways you know, beyond kind of as sexual um, their, you know, their attractiveness or their t- or their, mm-hmm. their value as sexual, you know, partners or what have you, romantic partners. So I, I think that that's an important part of this. Um, it, it we we really need to challenge ourselves to raise our daughters to think about all of the talents and all of the values mm-hmm. that they bring to this world and all mm-hmm. the things that they're accomplished are available able to do, able to accomplish? Mm
1: -hmm. I I think it's interesting. I'm raising two daughters, um, (laughs) and they are 10 and 7. And it's interesting to see, especially with my 10-year-old who's coming to that understanding of, like, who she is in the world. And, you know, and it's interesting because um, I want to not... And Elena, you have two Mm -hmm, daughters, and I think, um, you know, I think about the messages that I got when I was younger. Um, I, I remember... When I was probably of the age where you know I started, my body started changing, and I started getting curves, and you know, and I remember people saying to my mother in Spanish, like some of her friends, "Cuidala," uh, <laughs> "Cuidala," or saying, "Ay que cuerpo tan lindo," you know, like what a beautiful body. And I think you know the the other thing that's difficult is that when you are bilingual mm-hmm. and growing up in two different cultures, words have meanings. Mm-hmm. And, and it's translated differently Mm -hmm. and so it's difficult sometimes because in my mind tiene un cuerpo bonito does not translate to she has a nice shape right or she has a which also i knew like no one would ever say that Mm -hmm. (laughs) right no not in front of me as a growing girl Mm -hmm. um in english Mm -hmm. right like that was not culturally acceptable and so when you go to school and they tell you protect yourself, do this, do that. Mm-hmm. But then you go to another culture that's like, oh, you have a beautiful body, you're going to do this, you're going to have so many babies, look at your hips. It is, <laughs> I was, I, I was like appalled. And then not not just that, but mm-hmm. then I have a mom who's like, that skirt's too short, that shirt's too low mm-hmm. cut, dress mm-hmm. like this. You have to never leave the house without a girdle, hold everything in. It is like, you don't, how do you...
0: A lot of messages. Right, how do you reconcile yeah.
1: those things, yes. right? And how do you reconcile a, a culture that mm-hmm. in many ways celebrates women, mm-hmm. right? Celebrates mm-hmm. women, at but at the same time, doesn 't always empower them mm-hmm. right, but then on the flip side, you have another culture that's like we need to fight and we need to and so, how do you raise girls in a place where you know you you want to teach them the best of both worlds you want to empower them, you want to help them mm-hmm. to decipher where they are because I believe we you said I believe what you were saying before about um You know, to me, the definition of feminism is you deciding what that means for you, Mm -hmm. right? It means many things. And so I think you decide the kind of woman that you want to be. But at the same time, I think the challenge is that we put a lot of focus and a lot of onus on us being the educators of that Mm -hmm. and not the focus on how are we educating our boys then. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. how we carry ourselves in the world, if I want to wear something that does celebrate my sexuality and I want to be a woman that celebrates that, are boys getting that same message? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are they going to then celebrate me? And not only celebrate, but respect that Mm -hmm. and understand that. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, it's incredibly difficult. And it's, to me, I think with our girls, it's like giving them all of the options and asking them questions so that they can define that for themselves and understand that it's, it's still going to be complicated. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's been a challenge for me. My, I have two teens um, and, and I walk that fine line between, I don't want to police their bodies, but I also want them to not uh, find value on the um, attention that they get because of what they're wearing or how they, you know, how they carry themselves in public or what, what have you. Mm -hmm. But because of their mind because of their values because, you know so walking that fine line right uh, and i remember i grew up the same thing like uh, you know uh, esa falda está muy cortita and all of that stuff and and um it, 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 and it was done because i have two brothers and so uh, older than me and and it was done so that to protect right to protect me um but then again how do we educate men? Right. It's mm-hmm. not it, because we always have to do the the protecting and the and the censoring for the benefit of or so that we won't um, get this maybe negative attention or whatever. But w- what are we doing to also yeah.
2: yeah, and I, I mean, I, I appreciate uh, uh, both uh, uh, Lourdes and Elena's comments because I think that a lot of times this, this discussion puts the onus on women mm-hmm. um, uh, in terms of this is how you protect yourself from these things, which is – Pragmatically, because mm-hmm. I also have a teen daughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pragmatically, yeah, you gotta tell your kids, mm-hmm. you know, especially the young girls to, uh, you know, uh, to protect themselves. But I think that that's that conversation is not happening among primarily cis heterosexual boys. Mm-hmm. That the, the 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 message that they're not. Entitled to women's bodies just because they're, you know, they're cisgender males or Mm -hmm. heterosexual males, Mm -hmm. and so I don't think that message is being communicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we have, we were talking about social media, and then we have social media where young women are encouraged to, you know, to, 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 you know, to kind of use social media to kind of promote this idea of uh, of a uh, sexually available body. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Now again. You know, I know that there are a lot of young, you know young people who actually use it as expressions, self-expression, mm-hmm. and I. But that, that we're we're treading that fine line, and I mm-hmm. think that I think with uh, you know talking to young women, that's the the difficult conversation, right? But I think that still the conversation is not happening with with male. Yeah, mm-hmm. I really don't think it is.
1: Mm-hmm. And one other thing I would just add to that is I also think that we need to. Um, we have created a dynamic that, um, and you see it everywhere. You see it in clothes. You see it in music. You see it on t- in TV. That our number one weapon is women is our sexuality. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's that is where we gain power from, because I think that there for too long, at, at least for me, I think that I deciphered power many times as the way that it was expressed as like, you are a man and you have power for being a man. You have more power if you're a white man. Right. Because you have access and you have privilege. And so what what is the weapon that I have? Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm a woman. Oh, I'm exotic because I'm a Latina. Oh, Mm -hmm. I'm... What are the things... You know, so I think that we need to... um, We need to break that down for women. We need to... Because... First of all, if that's really a superpower, then every woman has a
3: superpower, right? right.
1: I mean, because I think that we, that's not the thing that makes us unique, is my point, right? And so we need to break that down for people and we need to take that away. But I think that that's constantly reinforced in everything that we do, right? It's it, even in the way that we celebrate each other, we celebrate each other through that in some way, you know, even in po- and, and I mean that by more like popular culture mm-hmm. and the things that the messages that you see, the hashtags that you see. Um, I think it's it, the one thing that we look at ourselves and it's an interesting complicated conversation because I think it's complicated because it's like, yes, we should celebrate ourselves. But at the
0: same time, like, then we're, are we sending mixed messages about what that means mm-hmm. and so but again we leave it up to the women to um, curate her own <laughs> image right, right? right and and um, we leave it up to her so that it, it's a good set segue into the next question because I'm, ta- I'm asking about the victim right um, so uh, although we're happy that so many men and women um, uh, we, we have had some men that have uh, come forward as well and uncovered deeply rooted instances of abuse and power um, threats and sometimes sexual violence still the victim might potentially experience further, further harassment or victimization uh, what things do we need to do to change Um, to bring change in our society to make sure that we create a safe space for victims to call call out um, their experiences of abuse, but also receive support or protection from repercussions?
2: Well, I think that, and this is something, this is nothing new, but I I think that, you know, being conscious of the blame the victim discourse that is so pervasive in our Mm -hmm. society, where when we hear an instance, especially when it comes to like, Somebody reporting or you know uh, offering their testimony of abuse or violence that we tend to go back to that person, so what did that person do what is what was that person wearing, and so we tend to like uh and it 's almost sort of automatic, you know, like what did the person do to uh, you know uh, to bring that upon themselves and mm-hmm. so so this victim blaming, I think we need to, first of all, it needs to stop, but I think we need to be conscious about how it works you know and uh, and how it becomes a mechanism. Uh, that discourages you know um, you know um, uh, women in particular to report uh, sexual violence, and I think that om- I think that you could speak to almost almost any survivor of uh, of assault or violence, and they can tell you that they were revictimized mm. by a system, either the legal system mm. or perhaps their families uh, their friends, their social circles and that 's you know that's 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 tragic. It really is. So,
3: I'm I'm really proud of our students. I, I, so I think teaching um, young people to to talk about these things, to have these conversations, and to think about these issues together is really helpful. And um, we have a couple of freshmen who are uh, working in our office, uh, Diversity and Inclusion, and they uh, planned a fantastic event Um, recently. they, They brought together about 50 Latino students with the Office of Sexual Civility here on mm-hmm. campus, mm-hmm. and they had very frank and open conversations. And they did it um, within the context. What, what we know is that uh, Latino students on our campus don't take full advantage of a lot of the support services that we offer. And um, there are probably lots of reasons for that. But for a conversation like this about um, about um, sexual harassment, about um, re- respect and, and relationships and this vulnerability that they have in, in their relationships – I think um, being able to talk about that within the uh, context of the Latino cultures that they're bringing with them is really important. Um, and so these the, these are brand new freshmen, and they organized everything. They got mm. the office uh, staff to come to come out, and they um, were able to to hold a really terrific conversation and. And actually stemming from that conversation, they've identified further topics on mental health. And and, um, so I think just getting young people um, to talk about this and to understand that they are agents, that they have a lot of power um, to um, to create these systems of support for themselves is, is is really important.
1: Um. So I'm a survivor of sexual abuse, and it's not something that I often talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, it, it's, it's not, aside from the fact that it being difficult, I think it makes it difficult because of the stigma mm-hmm. that you believe is associated with what happened to you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because um, be, people don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was encouraged. I, it's interesting because I think the way that things have changed when I look at um the the gymnasts that have come out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So many of them so young that could share their stories in in ways that were not just oh, this is a very, you know, this is a thing that happened to me, but in ways that were very explicit. Um I was incredibly encouraged by that. You know, I'm 42 years old, or about to be 42 years old, and I'm watching, you know, a 13-year-old that owns her power, and that she realizes she's not alone. And I think um, it it is uh, an—when I think about my circle of my friends, family, um, women that I meet, women that— I'm hard pressed to find someone who has not Mm -hmm. been victimized in some way, Mm -hmm. whether as a child, whether as a woman, whether they've been assaulted, whether they've been harassed. Um, It's harder for me to find someone who hasn't been affected by that than than finding a woman who has. And the fact that we are not um, talking about it, Mm -hmm. that we're not encouraging ourselves about it, that we're holding it as. Some sort of shame. It's not shame on us. It's shame mm-hmm. on them. Mm-hmm. And um, and we need to build a community that, under, that there's more of us that feel this way. Mm-hmm. There's more of us that have been touched by this mm-hmm. than not. And so mm-hmm. I think that the more that people talk about it, the more mm-hmm. that you will be encouraged. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, when you feel... Like there is something wrong with you when you feel broken. When you're more in the shadows, you create your own dialogue about that Mm -hmm, instead mm -hmm. of talking to other people Mm -hmm. and realizing you're not alone. Mm -hmm. You know, and and that this is something that we can build a sisterhood around and a support around. And I think, you know, back to our the original question, I think that's what has sparked this movement is because there are so many people that feel that way. Mm -hmm. And if there's more people who are talking about it, then you're going to come out of those shadows and you're going to remove that stigma Mm -hmm. and you're going to educate people about what this feels like. Mm -hmm. And you're going to know, you know, it becomes kind of like in sororities when you see that pin and you know, Mm you know. And and people will be more encouraged, and I think that's what's going to change. That's what's really going to cause the change in terms of that stigma. I think there's always going to be people who say things. There's always going to be people, people who are ignorant. There's always going to be people who have strong opinions because they're not educated. Mm-hmm. And the only way to change that is to share our stories. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I just want to commend Lourdes this first in, you know um uh, in in talking about your experience, but I think there's something really powerful in what you said, which is you know the 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 importance of community building the ways in which survivors build a community of resistance mm-hmm. by speaking out and then and how that becomes such a, a powerful act of courage that then leads into this kind of domino effect where you know your um you know your 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 story legitimizes my story and in And and that incredible energy, I think, that comes out of, you know, survivors who speak out becomes the, I think, the ways in which we can undo and that not, not just the 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 discourses of blaming the victim, but you also brought up the discourses of shaming the victim mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, that are really uh you know that are really uh, um you know so so damaging and so um and so I think that community building, coalition building, which is I think what you were talking about, uh Lourdes, becomes so important. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that yes, again. Gracias.
0: Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um we are all Latinas here in this in this room in this podcast from, from different uh we come from different places. Um how do you see Latinas negotiating and working against toxic masculinity in their in our communities, schools, and in the workplace
2: um, I think even though not all Latinas are first of all Latinas are We come from such diverse backgrounds, Mm -hmm. right? You know, racially, uh, in terms of social class, in terms of our sort of gender, sexual identities and expressions. Um, But I I think that what is uh, particularly difficult for Latinas in the environment that we're living now is the anti-immigrant discourses that are so much part of our, you know, uh, our national discourse right now. And I know that not all Latinas are immigrants, but I think that the discourse of Latinx immigrant brown tends to affect a lot of Latinx populations. Um, And so I think that there is it has created, uh, and I think that I see that anti-immigrant discourse as part of a a form of toxic masculinity, Mm -hmm. a way in which, you know, we're basically saying that certain populations are more worthy of citizenship, more worthy of being here. Uh, And I think that a lot of times that message comes from white male figures. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, uh, And so I think that that has created a difficult situation for Latinas in all these sort of spheres. Uh, This is not to say that, you know, obviously Latinas don't speak out. Of course they do, you know. But I think that we have to be aware of how this moment of um, a lot of difficult um, discourses around race, around immigrant status, around citizenship have affected Latinas, regardless of their background. Um, And so I think this is something that we need to be cognizant of um, Mm -hmm. in terms of our experiences, really.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was listening to uh, an interview yesterday with um, Rebecca Solnit, who um, she's a writer, and she was talking about how um, men uh, do things when they believe that um, there's no one who can bear witness. And so if you take away the voice of uh, women or persons of color, anyone that they deem is less worthy or, or, or someone whose voice doesn't count, um, that sort of removes any accountability they have for their actions. So uh, I think th- this really um, coming together and and uh, reinforcing the voice that we have supporting one another, it, it goes back to that point, um, Gisela, that you were making about um, sort of being less worthy of citizenship, being somehow the mm-hmm. other, being just not a voice that counts. And so that is uh, just very much a part of this. And and I say for uh, here in in places like Ohio State, where there are so few of us, we have such as uh, a shallow representation on campus. I think wherever we are, whatever corners we're working in, we're all kind of isolated and lonely. Mm -hmm. And we've got to be very intentional about reaching out and and forming our communities, shaping our communities.
1: Um. I was in a training, and it's interesting. One of the things the trainer said at the beginning was she was talking about how when we talk about any of the isms, um, you know, she was saying I-, I believe most of the time, or a good—I'm going to not quote her correctly, but but basically, she was making the point that a lot of times people are acting on. Only the experiences that they have had mm-hmm. right and that it is a lack of knowledge instead of intent which was an interesting um, perspective for me at least because I uh, I always I do not trust that intent that the that good intentions are always there <laughs> <laughs> Uh, With me, you're guilty until proven innocent (laughs) instead of the other way around. I think in situations where, again, where there's, you know, why would you say that? Why would you act this way? And so I think um, I have the benefit of working in an organization that is – we celebrate diversity and we are actively diverse. And so we can have very honest conversations. And I understand that other people don't work in those environments. But what I found in having holding people accountable is that there is an absence of knowledge Mm -hmm. and just the same way, as we were talking about before, you know, people were like beautiful body skirts too short. I don't know what that means. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that that's the same way other people have been taught. And if you have not had access to different kinds of people to the opposite gender or you've been given all of these messages, I think a lot of times people are not aware um, and they're not aware of how they come across. And I think especially for men, I mean, if we're given mixed messages, I mean, I have lots of nephews and I watch them and even how they parent and it's even more complicated for them in a lot of instances, right? And they're not given like men empowerment, (laughs) right? There is no... That's actually not good. Always, right? We're like, you're already empowered. We actually want to disempower you, I think, is the message that they often get. And so I think when you talk about, I mean, for many people, they don't even understand that, that terminology, mm-hmm. toxic masculinity. What, mm-hmm. is, what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. So I think that holding people accountable and having those conversations when it's available, you know, and, and how do we make that accessible in the workplace? How do we begin to have those conversations, even when that's mm-hmm. not your not the culture mm-hmm. of your institution or your organization, mm-hmm. I think is really important.
0: Yeah, and we can have, I think, a whole nother podcast about <laughs> what it is to be a man, especially in the Latino culture, right? Yeah, Those messages. Yes. <laughs> 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 um clinical psychologist Yvette Flores Ortiz has argued that, and I'm gonna quote this, um, Latinas victimized by family violence must negotiate cultural scripts that mandate family loyalty which can result in a culture of silence and protects the men at the expense of the women's mental and physical health End of quote she along many other writers such as Sandra Cisneros Denise Chavez Glorian Saldúa to name a few have heavily criticized cultural practices of male identified women that perpetuate inequality among latinas what can we do to push women who have traditionally covered up sexual abuse experienced by other women uh, change their behavior? Can we create a culture that prevents us from looking the other way and become agents of change? And I think um, um, uh, Gisela started to talk about this building community, right, uh, and uh, making sure that we're not victim blaming uh, and in and dealing with uh, with shame as well.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I think that um, one of the things that we need to be aware of is that. Sort of whatever systems of oppression are out there that benefit certain communities over others, or that put certain sectors of society in power over others, that those are not just perpetrated by those who are in power. That so they 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 float right. So like for example, you know I can be a person of color and still say something racist because mm-hmm. I am part of a system. And so I think that what happens with this example that you are talking about, uh, sort of women perpetuating um these sort of discourses, um, that I, I think that we need to be aware how they are systems of power, right? So, so, for example, the whole thing is like, well, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. I'm like, OK, well, <laughs> you know, that doesn't, you know, prove that doesn't prove <laughs> Right. It proves nothing. And so this idea of how we internalize, right, all of these and I think that I think uh, I think maybe um, I think both Yolanda and Lourdes were talking about that becomes an important um, um, an, an important uh, uh, awareness that we mm-hmm. need to have I also think that there is a larger history among people of color in particular in the us where um, Kind of bringing out our dirty laundry feels like mm-hmm. we are betraying each other, right? So, for example, if I, you know, uh, if I, you know, publicly accuse a man of color of sexually harassing, uh, harassing me or um, um, or assaulting me. Then what what I'm doing is, um, you know, I'm bringing shame to the race, or exactly, the, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. because we bear this burden of representation as people of color, and so mm-hmm. we need to work in on doing that and not keeping it within the family, um. And there's a history of this if you look back to the history of the Chicano movement in you know in uh, in the United States the women who began to articulate feminist um you know feminist sensibilities and who began to also call out the men on their racism um they were labeled traidoras mm-hmm. they were labeled mal- malinches yes mm-hmm. you know uh, malinches, yeah. malinches mm-hmm. all because they were seen as drawing a wedge you know dividing you know, because it is, after all, only the white men that oppresses us. So we have to have this unified front. And so I think that, you know, questioning those beliefs about, like, we have to unify, we have to pre- protect our own. Yes, we do have to support each other. But I think that that does not mean that we are going to be um, kind of um, uh, uh, um, facilitating, not facilitating, that's not the word, enabling Enabling. Mm-hmm. abuse, enabling Um, these forms of oppression that happen within our own communities. Mm -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, and this um, feels a little bit dry, but um, given the impassioned content that we're talking about, but when I look at the implicit bias research as Mm -hmm. well, um, we see uh, um, there's a a growing body of research that that shows we all carry these biases and... um, when we look at uh, gender and also uh, eth- ethnic groups, there is not an in bias um, benefit. So, for example, if um, there, there's a study of of uh, letters that were written to faculty members, there were 6,500 uh, emails that went out to faculty. Look, in, and it was from someone who was purporting to be a, a graduate student wanting information about graduate study, and um, they they changed the name on the email to to. Uh, signal gender or um, or ethnic ethnic group, ethnic Mm -hmm. or racial. And white men, overwhelmingly white men were advantaged in the responses. And there was women weren't responding to other women. There wasn't, there was not a sense or or ethnic groups, there was not a benefit um, to being in the in-group. And so it's like Everybody has accepted these um, these biases. We've all grown up in this in mm-hmm. this hierarchy, and and we're all uh, sort of moving it forward. So we need to just be very critical uh, and and examine how we're participating in that, even unconsciously.
1: Um, I, I think this question is interesting. So in Ladina mentoring county, one of the very first things. So these. The women in LMA come from all different backgrounds. So you could have a recently graduated college student from OSU who maybe one parent is Latino to someone who has been in this country for three years and she may have like four degrees in her country, but that doesn't translate here and she's working as a secretary, right? And we have women who are changing there. I mean, Literally all walks of life, every kind of Latina uh, by definition, right? And so um, it's interesting because one of the very first things that we do, which I find is really interesting, is we just like level set. What does it mean to be Latina? What does Latinx mean? And it's interesting because for some of them, they've never had to be labeled anything, Mm -hmm. right? If you are in Cuba or Puerto Rico or Mexico or Chile or whatever, you are Chileno, you are mm-hmm. Puerto Rican, you know, right. and there might be varying degrees of like race in some places, and there may be whatever. But in some in some countries, it's homogenous, pretty homogenous, right. And so the idea of what race or privilege or any of those things mean, it, it's a new concept to some people, right. Or even for some women, even defining that for themselves is different as well. I mean, because, you know, they have defined if you um, have not had a strong ethnic, you know, strong um, connection to your ethnicity, and let's say you are black, then for you, you've you've gravitated towards a black American culture, right? And not maybe not your Puerto Rican, Dominican, Cuban, whatever culture, right? And so anyway, so it's an interesting conversation for us to have that level set. And I think that a lot of what you asked in this question is woven into that right? Because we're coming from, I mean, you know, my parents came to this country in 1970. They were a little older. They were in their 30s. And as they were here, they grappled with very American issues. And they had to make a decision as to where they stood from everything that they had been raised upon. My mother's incredibly, she goes to church, even when she's on vacation, (laughs) she finds a church to go to. And there's, there's, a lot there, right, mm-hmm. in terms of religion and in terms of culture and then coming to this new place and understanding what that means. And I think even if you were born here, there's a lot of whole, whole, holdover from what we've been taught and a lot of things that are just part of who we are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some of that is like don't rock the boat, be mm-hmm. complacent. Be And we find that a lot with the women in Latina Mentoring Academy, even like very empowered women, we are just taught that you are like, you know, Kind of go with the flow. Mm-hmm. It's okay. You're going to deal with whatever, you know. So I think that um, the hope that I have for this is, first of all, I think people need to make a decision upon where they stand, right, as they get information. And I think this goes back to what I was saying before is that being exposed to information, mm-hmm. you know, how are they exposed? But then also this next generation, right? I mean, they are so, you know, we talk about people being woke. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> they are much more woke, mm-hmm. right? Um Sometimes it feels like they're a little more more woke, but I think that's just because they're challenging us. Mm -hmm. You know, they're challenging us on the way we talk, on the way that we think. All the things that I grew up with, people saying, we shouldn't use this word, we shouldn't say this, but then, you know, when you look at music and different kind of genres and music and their culture a lot of the things that we're working against are part of it, and people don't want to really change it. Mm-hmm. you know. So I think that this goes back to this generation and how they're growing up and how they're going to continue to teach and push us and how they're going to redefine this for themselves mm-hmm. um, because I think that's where the hope really lies. I mean, each generation gets better. Mm-hmm. Each generation learns more. They get smarter, and they're going to challenge us, and we're just laying the groundwork for the society that we eventually want to be
0: yes and i just want to mention briefly that the 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 fact that in my case that i have girls that i'm that i'm um raising girls is challenging some of the things some some of those cultural scripts that i been given and that you know my my um university degree all my um post uh what it, what it comes, university and, and graduate school and everything was done in the us so i learned um I became woke right <laughs> in the u s in terms of uh, talking about gender and talk about um, issue, issues of um, you know class and and, and race, et cetera, but not in spanish right and mm-hmm. and not uh, culturally that was how I was talking about it in the classroom or as a professor um, was different maybe than how I was behaving. Not completely, but mm. there was something there still that my girls are actually having me face, right? That like, wait, um, am I saying this? Why am I saying this? Is it because is what I was taught? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been like so internal that I don't right. even realize it? Or is it? because of something else. Right. And so I have had to face those things myself. And like, um, if I'm going to say, you know, don't wear a mini mini skirt, is that because my brothers, you know, (laughs) insisted that I didn't? Uh, Or is it because of something else? Um, So I have to really think about it. when I you know as I'm raising my girls and they ask questions or that or oh oh, I have a rule, <laughs> why is this rule um there um mm-hmm. and so you know yeah you're you're right our yeah as parents or just our younger our millennials are challenging us, i think um, mm-hmm.
2: yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think you're seeing this generation, I mean, you saw like for example also all the high school walkouts mm-hmm. that we had just earlier this week. Uh, in terms of how uh, this generation is um, uh, uh, is is, is, un- is understanding that the older generations are just not taking care of business, you know, mm-hmm. we're like kind of failing <laughs> a lot of things, and uh, uh, we're becoming very complacent, mm-hmm. or we, you know, we're still kind of in um, uh, uh, invested in certain institutional practices, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and I think that it, it is. Uh, I think, incumbent upon us sort of like, and by our generation, you know, maybe like when I th- I'm thinking people that were born before the, the turn of the millennium, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which I think includes all of us here. That right? mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I think it's also about us understanding even no matter how educated we think we are, no matter, I mean, I again, I've been working in a feminist department for mm-hmm. over 10 years. Um, I proudly call myself a feminist, but I think that you know, we can't stay complacent. I think you were talking about complacency, uh, um, Lourdes, Uh, and and think that, oh, we're, you know, we're so woke, right, we're cool, you know, we're, you know, we're we're incapable of, you know, of reproducing very problematic uh, and potentially oppressive practices, right? That I think that there's some, that a lot of times these ideas are so deeply ingrained and are, especially those of us who were raised with it, and that we, we have challenged it, but yet it doesn't mean that we are completely immune to, mm-hmm. you Sorry. know, to this idea. So the 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 you know the practice of like I think Yolanda talked about this of being always critical, uh, of always kind of checking yourself mm-hmm. um,
3: becomes really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness for Emma Gonzalez; she is my yes. hero. Yeah. <laughs> But actually, when we look at Emma uh, speaking up against the guns and seeing the reaction of that congressional candidate who Mm. is a privileged, grown-up, powerful white man. Mm -hmm. And he went after her by name Mm -hmm. and went after her sexual identity. Oh, my goodness. And this is a child. She's a child. And so this is a serious game. Mm -hmm. It is is serious. Well, it's not a game. Or the people
1: who – I can't remember if it was just a caller. I remember hearing this quote on NPR, um, this woman saying, uh, since when do we just let kids do whatever they want? Mm -hmm. We tell kids what to do. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking to myself, like, what – backwards thinking one and second of all how non-self-serving is that right Mm -hmm. because it's like we we want we want young people to be Mm -hmm. bright and to stand up for themselves and we teach Mm -hmm. them all these values and then when they're doing that and it's something we don't agree with and we're like no go back into your place Mm -hmm. you know
3: yeah
1: yeah Yeah. Yeah.
3: there
0: is none (laughs) Oh, thank you. Um, dear audience, I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and has pushed you to consider the ways in which you and I can make a difference by providing us a, a space for conversation that leads to action and hopefully to more Emma Gonzalez um, around the world. A todos. Gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima.